And so when the other guys get in charge and you've mowed down the Constitution, what's going to protect you now? Right. And so the, the idea of holding on to um, our trust in the Lord so that we don't compromise our principles, even when we're fighting for what's right. I think that's what we've got to do. And we've got to believe that in the long run, it will pay off. Welcome to Act in Line a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute, interviews Dr. Rachel Ferguson about her lecture at Acton University on the problem of political polarization. From social media to cable news to tribalism to racial injustice to transgender activism, Dr. Ferguson gets at the deeper roots of the problem and offers a path of hope grounded in her Christian faith and philosophical expertise. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Act in Line. My name is Dylan Palman. I'm a research fellow here at the Acton Institute and executive editor of our Journal of Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by Dr. Rachel Ferguson, an economic philosopher and professor of business and assistant dean and director of the Center for Free Enterprise at Concordia University, Chicago. As director of the Free Enterprise Center there, she leads a nationwide cross-disciplinary faculty network that engages questions of liberty and virtue through seminars, conferences, and pedagogy. Dr. Ferguson has been a visiting fellow at the Eudaimonia Institute, and her work can be found in Discourse, the Journal Markets Morality, and the Library of Economics and Liberty. Rachel lives in St. Louis, Missouri, where she is actively involved in community building and empowering marginalized entrepreneurs through Love the Lou and Gateway to Flourishing. Our conversation today will be about the first of two lectures Rachel is giving here at Acton University as we record this. Uh, this one having the title, Like a Tree Planted Beside Still Waters, Navigating the Rising Tide of Political Polarization. Rachel, welcome to Acton Line. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Jeremiah 17, 7 to 8 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will it cease from yielding fruit. If I'm not mistaken, I presume this is the source of your lecture title. Yes. So what does, what does being a person who trusts in the Lord have to do with navigating the rising tide of political polarization? And for that matter, what is political polarization? What do people mean by that phrase and why is it a problem that needs navigating? Yeah, great. Well, it has everything to do <laughs> with navigating political polarization because it takes real spiritual and emotional maturity to resist the temptation of our moment, um, which I think is to be pulled um, into a kind of reactionaryism. And so political polarization um, is, 
you know, a kind of rising tide of tribalism, not a, not tribalism in the true sense, right? That I'm part of a real community where I'm shoulder to shoulder living together with people and doing things with them. That could be a kind of healthy tribe, right? But rather um, an unhealthy tribalism that is often based on things that are not so relevant to our identities, um, or maybe I should say ought not to be so relevant to our identities. Um, our political ideas uh, can often connect us with people in a very surfacey sort of way, um, you know, obviously on the internet, on social media. Uh, there's a sense in which because of the rise of uh, the smartphone, right, and the 24-hour news cycle, we can curate our feed so that we're living in our own little echo chamber, hearing only our own ideas. Um, there's actually a, a physical element to this, right, because you get kind of a dopamine hit when you feel like you're one of the good guys and you're doing something about the bad guys and that something is just typing away on your keyboard, right? And so, um, so we, it's very addictive. It's something you can really get caught up in, um, a lot like sin. Right. And so being grounded in the truth, um, believing what our Lord tells us about reality and being unwilling to give that up, even if it means that I don't quite fit in with one of the political tribes. Um, that's what um, that's what made me think of the phrase like a tree planted by still waters. And of course, growing up in the Jesus movement in the 1970s, we sang a song like a tree planted by still waters. I shall not be moved. Right? <laughs> and so that's what I was thinking of yeah, uh, yeah. with the title. Yeah. Oh, great. So it, it seems like, as you mentioned, it seems like everywhere you turn today, perhaps especially on the Internet, but also I think cable and print news, um, everything comes at us through this partisan political lens. doesn't matter what the news is. could be, you know, lost dog has been found and also <laughs> don't vote for Joe Biden or whatever, you know. Right. Um, the most innocuous things from beer to chicken sandwiches uh, become shibboleths of ideological purity. Uh, are we already hopelessly polarized? Uh, hasn't the battle, if not the war, which both are bad metaphors, I should note, uh, <laughs> ha hasn't it already been lost? Um, isn't it too late? Oh, good question. Well, as an example of the ubiquity of this polarization, just the other day there was a terrible fire on on a highway in Philadelphia. I don't know if you remember this. It was yes. just a yeah, the, week or the two bridge ago. Collapse, yeah. yeah, and uh, immediately people were saying, "Oh, you know, so and so didn't pay for our infrastructure," and yeah. it, right, and it was like it was very hot fire, guys. It was a gasoline truck that <laughs> right. blew up. It had nothing to do with politics. But you're right; everyone just immediately politicized it. You saw that mm. on social media. Um, I think that uh, I am, I do not have that kind of hopeless uh, attitude. And part of that is because there are natural cycles, you know, to the mm -hmm. way these things go. We actually have been this polarized before. <laughs> you know, the 1850s was pretty bad. Uh, right. And so you you have and we and we've been cruel. Very cruel and yellow, yellow journalism, right? We've had all of that in our history, even going back to, um, you know, some of the early presidential elections, mm -hmm. uh, right? Election of 1800, With, right? Oh, my <laughs> gosh. You know, some of the terrible things and people had newspapers that were totally biased one way or the other. Mm -hmm. That all has existed before. And so having a good sense of history uh, helps us to have more of a long-term kind of perspective. Mm. And so, yes, we're in a moment. We're in a hot moment of political polarization. But we can be on the side of moving out of that and moving moving into the next phase. And so I truly believe that it is uh, escapable. So uh, in your lecture, you mentioned your book, 
black liberation through the marketplace in the context of, of bursting out of false dichotomies. Uh, what does that story uh, that you tell in the book and the, the argument you make in the book have to say about political polarization? Yeah, I mean, this is actually how I kind of got into the topic of tribalism and polarization because, uh, you know, I, I live 10 minutes away from Ferguson, Missouri. At the time, my my work was 10 minutes on the other side of Ferguson, so I was passing right by it uh, every day as I drove to work. And, um, you know, as a classical liberal, I am pro-criminal justice reform. Um I am pro-entrepreneurship, right? And so you had a lot of people in Ferguson who were struggling because people thought it was too dangerous to go to their shops, which just wasn't true, right? The news media really played that up uh, more than, you know, really worked with reality. And so I went in and tried to help the entrepreneurs, and I, I was trying to popularize their shops, and I was working on criminal justice reform events and so forth. And people were just so puzzled by it because I worked for a free enterprise center, at Linden, this is at Lindenwood University, my previous institution. And I started to be known as this weird person on campus. I'm like this pro-black person, you know, but I work for this, you know, people here free enterprise and they think Republican or something like that, right? Of course, I'm classical liberal. I've never been Republican. But um, but that's what they assume. And so it was really interesting to me, and it occurred to me, you know, we classical liberals have a plethora of insights on race and discrimination. We even have Nobel Prize winning economists who have won their prize specifically for their work on racial discrimination. And yet we're not the ones people think of when they think about wisdom on these topics. And I thought, that's terrible. Why is that? And it's because no one had gathered all those insights together into one place and said, here's the pro-black classical liberal tradition. And so that's what really inspired my co-author, Marcus Witcher, and I to write the book. And then, of course, once you get in there, you think, OK, here's the dichotomy, right? We assume that if you're pro-black, then you must be big government. You must be pro-big government. And if you're a small government person, you don't care about black people or black history. That's kind of the stereotypical dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. And here I am. I'm a pro-black small government person. I care a lot about the history of black oppression. Um, and I care about the future of black Americans. And I think that small government policies are the solution. Mm -hmm. And I'm not alone. Yeah. Right. So if you go back into history, you find that a whole subsection of the abolitionist movement were some of the most extreme free marketeers of the 19th century. William Lloyd Garrison. I didn't even know that. I didn't know that till I wrote this book. I didn't know that Richard Cobden and his whole anti-corn law thing in England spurred this whole abolitionist movement. Harriet Beecher Stowe and all of these thinkers were all of these sort of anti-coercion kind of thinkers. And it was coercive to uh, get in the way of people's free trade. And it's coercive to enslave people. It was all part of the same principle for them. And, of course, Garrison is the mentor of, of Frederick Douglass. But Frederick Douglass brings in this wonderful sort of pro-American element where he says to, to Garrison, the Constitution is a great liberty document. 
right? Yes, maybe it was historically a compromise with slavers, but if you read the words and you hold us to the contract that we made, right, by signing that Constitution, then the issue has never been the Constitution, to quote Frederick Douglass, but the issue is whether Americans have honor enough and courage enough to live up to their Constitution. And so then as you go on, there's the, you know, two of the founders of the NAACP, Story and Villard, very serious classical liberals, Rose Wilder Lane writing for the Pittsburgh Courier, anti-communist, one of the three mothers of libertarianism. She's writing on lynching. She's writing on zoning, right? She's fighting for black rights from the perspective of individual rights. Zora Neale Hurston. The great black novelist and anthropologist, right? She gets kicked out of the Harlem Renaissance by Langston Hughes for being such an individualist. She's an anti-New Dealer. So what's the point? Once you look at this pro-black small government tradition, all these people come out of the woodwork. And you realize that there's this amazing tradition, but it's not something anybody has sort of put together and presented. And so the next project that my co-author and I are working on is actually looking at the biographies of many of these amazing pro-black classical liberals. And one of the amazing things is that we're not finding many virulent racists in our tradition. Conservatives have theirs and progressives sure have theirs. We talk about that in the book. But classical liberals really don't. We don't have a lot of that in our tradition, and I think that's kind of a tribute to the power of the tradition that the the affirmation of human dignity that's really at the center of the classical liberal tradition. Yeah. So for some context, um, economics is sometimes referred to as the dismal science. Uh, That was a a term coined by Thomas Carlyle uh, in response to John Stuart Mill, uh, who believed that all people were equal and therefore should not be enslaved. Uh, Like like many classical liberal economists, uh, he fought for abolition in Britain, and they succeeded. Um, So it's a big part of the story that does not get told enough. Another bit of context, uh, because 2015 was now eight years ago, Um, you mentioned Ferguson, Missouri. That was the the place where in 2015 there was an officer involved shooting of a young man, Michael Brown, uh, Mm -hmm. who was stopped uh, for jaywalking and suspected shoplifting. Um, And it really started in many ways. It was the impetus for the Black Lives Matter movement uh, across the country. So just to give some context, as never know the age of our listeners. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and just to clarify, yeah. I mean, there have been three trials of that yeah. per- specific case. And Michael Brown's case is actually not a very compelling yeah. case um, because in in every case, the, the police officer has been Acquitted, and I think I think correctly in that mm. case. But there have been other very yeah. serious cases, Philando Castile mm-hmm. being a much better example, um, that are more compelling. Mm-hmm. And so, rather than um, you know being reactionary yeah. right, and saying, "Look at people pointing to Michael Brown," I say, "Okay, Michael Brown isn't a good example, but look at these others." Right? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great example of an, an issue that really matters and that people care very deeply about. Um, that was almost instantly you know, polarized and politicized, yeah. right? Um, so that helps as far as connecting your book to how do we cut through you know, that polarization. Um, so you also mentioned, um, and you can talk about these if you want, but I'm going to invite you to maybe explore other possibilities. So you mentioned COVID-19, lockdowns, Walmart, wokeness, um, trans issues. Uh, what are some other examples of false dichotomies arising from and feeding into political polarization? Yeah, so I wanted to clarify, I wanted to bring up some examples to show that when we are anti-tribal, right, when we're anti-polarization, it doesn't always mean that we don't take a side, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I think there's this notion that, oh, it's just third wayism, and we're just trying to yeah. not, you know, right, not have to mm-hmm. follow up on our principles. 
what we the side we're on is the truth, right? That's the side we're on. Yeah. And so in some cases, uh, the, the COVID example I gave was a guy saying, you know, we were right about vaccines and masks and lockdowns. And, you know, he went down through all of the, the list. And I kind of said, yes, no, yes, no. Right. I, <laughs> so I sort of responded to each one as well. Which kind of mask, you know, et cetera, yeah. kind of showing that it's very unlikely that one side is 100 percent correct right. on every single thing. So that's a case where in my own case, for instance, I think the vaccines worked, but I think that the lockdowns were a terrible idea and have terrible consequences. And so you don't have to be all one or all the other because you can have some nuance. On the other hand, if you take trans issues as an example, um, you know, I I have a, one might say a, you know, I'm totally on one side. Right. I, I think that men are men and women are women and you can't change your sex. And I also think you shouldn't harm your healthy body. I mean, just you should never, ever do that. And um, but so you think, oh, OK, well, she's just on one side. Well, yes, I am. But you can still be nuanced. Right. So you can still make the distinction between the very rare case of people who are genuinely born with kind of their wires crossed, right, who who genuinely feel uncomfortable from a very, very young age. That has happened mostly to boys, historically, very, very small number of people. But, you know, we live in a fallen world. We're born with all kinds of disorders. You know, I'm born into a family with a, a, a strong um, tendency towards alcoholism. You know, I mean, that's just part of what it is to live in a fallen world. And so that's that can happen. And what compassion we should have for people in that situation. How can we help them to navigate their lives well without harming their healthy bodies? That's a different situation from someone, for instance, who has autogynephilia, which is a kind of sexual addiction where you are attracted, where a male is attracted to themselves as a female. Um, these people can be very aggressive. They can be um, very dangerous, quite frankly, for women. I'm going to deal with a person like that in a totally different way than I'm going to deal with that first category. And then if you're talking about young girls who have rapid onset gender dysphoria and they're going in groups, you know, uh, and, and they, they never felt uncomfortable in their bodies until they hit puberty. That's a totally different. Do you see what I'm saying? So you've got three totally different groups of people here. And if I'm too ready to say, oh, you know, those freaks are, you know, talking in a to sort of trash this this group of human people, then I, I stop myself from making those finer distinctions and understanding how to properly respond to each group as as human beings with, you know, the people that Jesus died for, right? We have to love people. And so Yes, I disagree, right? But in a more nuanced way. So I kind of wanted to show the group that it doesn't mean you don't take a side. Sometimes you're saying a little bit of both, you know, from either side. And other times you're saying, no, you're right, but let's be careful in the right. way we talk about it. So what do people, what can people do though? I mean, this is, yeah. Like I'm very sympathetic. See, I, I'm a squishy moderate myself. I, I will <laughs> happily admit uh, that's how I self identify politically. Um, but, you know, let's let's say someone you know, they say, okay, you know, I I I get it. Yeah, there's there's every issue is messier than it seems. But at the end of the day, you know, at least on the political front, one side's going to win, one side's going to lose. Like, don't you have to pick a side? Don't you? Isn't there? If you want to make a difference, if you want, you know, especially in these cases where the dichotomy isn't really a false dichotomy, um, what are you supposed to do? Don't you, aren't you just? Is there no other choice than just to jump on the bandwagon? How can we actually? What alternatives are there? Um, you know, doesn't it still just kind of degenerate into this this polarized rhetoric and culture? 
Yeah, I mean, that that's what brings us back, I think, to the spiritual formation question. And what I did in the talk is I quoted um, Isaiah 31. In, in Isaiah 31, Isaiah says, um, you know, don't trust in, in the Egyptian horses and in the might of their chariots, right? The one who will be okay is the one who trusts in the Lord. And so I think there's a real temptation right now to say, to come from an attitude of two things, which I think are sort of the grounding vices of all of sin, <laughs> all of our sin, and that's fear and pride, fear and pride. And the Bible says perfect love drives out fear, mm-hmm. right? And so the fear is the other guys are going to win. Yeah. And the pride is we can crush them with our might, mm-hmm. right? And and what we'll do, and, and I quoted Bono, I know that's passe now, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I quoted Bono from Peace on Earth. He says, you become the monster so the monster will not break you, Hmm. right? So there's this temptation, and you see people say it out loud oftentimes. They'll say, they're fighting dirty, so we've got to fight dirty. Mm -hmm. I say, nobody who believes in the Lord should ever say that. Hmm. They should should never say that. I trust in the Lord. The Lord fights my battles. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, if you look at things like, like totally inappropriate content in schools, Mm-hmm. Yes, you should stand up against that. There should yep. not be pornography in our children's schools, but do not throw out the Constitution to do it, mm-hmm. right? Because there are people who are so desperate to address these issues and they don't, they're not trusting. They're operating out of fear. Yeah. And when we operate out of fear, we're ready to throw out all our principles. And mm-hmm. let me tell you, we'll pay for that later. And I didn't actually read this part of the passage, but if you keep on going yeah. in Isaiah 31, he says, those horses are going to turn around and run back on you. Mm-hmm. That's what happens, right? Mm-hmm. And so when the other guys get in charge and you've mowed down the Constitution, what's going to protect you now, right? And so the, the idea of holding on to... Um, our trust in the Lord so that we don't compromise our principles, even when we're fighting for what's right. I think that's what we've got to do. And we've got to believe that in the long run, it will pay off. So it's a similar sort of question, but, um, you know, I've known you for several years now. And like I said, I'm I'm very much very much on board being a squishy moderate myself. But but whatever. This is I just, don't call myself a squishy I, moderate. Sorry. Just so your listeners know. know. Well, you're not you're I'm not one of the polls. I'm a passionate classical liberal. I know. I know. You're not one of the polls. You're not one of the extremes. True. That's, that's what I mean. I know it's not True. not your term. You call yourself. I am I am also a classical liberal. Um, but what if it's just you and me, right? What if it's just like a personality type or a product of the unique circumstances in which we were raised? You know, isn't it? Unrealistic to expect everyone else, um, especially those who view themselves at war with their political and cultural rivals, to just abandon the trenches. I mean, yes, there's all this language about peace, um, which I I highly recommend people dwell on in the scriptures. Um, Jesus even says, love your enemies. But, you know, Israel had an army. Um, Christian nations have defended themselves throughout history. And love, um, love doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. Right. There's a whole theology of just war. Um, so w- what do we say to those people? Um, you know, is is it just us? Um, do we tell them, you know, can could, is it possible to abandon the trenches and, you know, come together for a friendly game of soccer or tea, <laughs> a cup of tea? You know, I mean, it, uh, it seems unimaginable. Um, and... You know, as you said, this may not be the only moment in history, but all that kind of, you can look at that in two ways. And the one way, which I I hope people will look at, is that there's hope that we don't have to be stuck in this polarized way. On the other hand, it's 
also shows that we kind of keep coming back to it. And mm. how do we get through that? Well, maybe one side won. Um, Mm. So what do you tell people that they really do view themselves as at war uh, with their political and cultural rivals, people who maybe are, are less convinced than you and me um, and might think that we're just kind of weird? <laughs> I think that we have to – and I don't think there are easy answers here. I, you're asking a super legitimate question, one that I wrestle with myself a lot. Mm. You know, Think about, for instance, the argument over cultural Christianity – Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have some people saying, well, we want real Christians, not just cultural Christians, right? And mm -hmm. and sure, but the truth is, is that cultural Christianity saves a lot of people from a lot of terrible outcomes mm -hmm. because paganism is pretty awful. Yep. And so, you know, right? So I'm not in denial, right, about, about how much this stuff matters. Mm -hmm. I'm really not. I think the issue is how we frame it. Um, are we at war with our neighbors? Or are we at war with the powers and the principalities, right? And so, yes, we stand up for what's right. We stand up for what's true. We fight. We go to the school board meetings. We do, right? Yeah. You, you can do all of those things. But how do you conduct yourself when you do it? I think that's more the point that I'm making. I'm not saying abandon the trenches. Mm. I'm saying how do we fight the war, right? It's a, we have a just war theory. Mm. That's when it's just to go to war and when it's just in war, right? Mm. How we behave in war. So we don't kill civilians, mm. right? We don't target civilians. There are certain things you don't do even when you're at war. And so I think in some sense we have to fight for what's right and what's true because it's the right thing to do but not think that we can control the outcome such that we're willing to do something wrong in mm. order to get there. And what I'm seeing among a lot of Christians, frankly, is a utilitarian ethic mm. taking over. And the ethic is, the yeah, ends justify the means, mm. right? And so, um, you know, I'm going to pick up the tools of coercive power. I'm going to pick up uh, scoffing, right? Read mm -hmm. Psalm one. Scoffers aren't aren't too good, right? Mm -hmm. In that song, that the other one I thought of with you. Yeah, actually. right. Psalm one is yep. the other one that talks about like a tree planted by still mm -hmm. waters, and it's contrasted with the person who sits in the seat of scoffers. Mm -hmm. So, am I scoffing or am I coming with genuine love and care, which does draw boundaries? Love mm -hmm. can be very tough. Uh, because it, it wants what's truly good, not mm -hmm. just what's apparently good to people, but what's actually good for them. Right. And so mm -hmm. love can be very tough, but it's still love. Mm -hmm. It's still out of love. It's not out of hate. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about giving up on the cultural battles. I'm talking about asking ourselves how we go about fighting them. Let's imagine, as I hope this is the case, and we've kind of gotten on to this a little bit, um, but let, let's just say that, that some listeners are convinced now that, <laughs> that we, you know, you've won them over. <laughs> um, that what was easy. What should they do in their families? What should they do mm, on social media? What yes. should they do in, in their workplaces, uh, in their, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner, whatever the case may be? I mean, you, you mentioned some of this about perspective, but it gets hard when it gets into friendships and family and personal relationships or, um, you know, when, when there's other commitments uh, that make it hard to feel like you, you know, it, well, if I don't speak up, who will? Or, you know, or whatever the case may be. Um, or or they're, they're looking at, you know, some of the objections I've raised, and now those are going to be coming at, at them, right? You know, how do you, how do you go through this day after day? I mean, you've been doing this for years, as you mentioned. Um, 
Uh, it's a, it's a, I'm sure on the one hand, you've, as you mentioned, you surprise people in a very positive way, but I'm sure you've also bothered people in a very negative oh, yes. way. Um, oh, yes. So, how, I mean, how do you deal with that? And how, how would you recommend people if they say, you know, what, I really do want to try to do better at, at, you know, doing less, giving in less to, you know, maybe consuming less of this partisan political polarized content um, and thinking less in that, in those patterns of thoughts. But what does that look like, David? I mean, you mm-hmm. mentioned spiritual formation, but you know, mm-hmm. so okay, read the Bible more. I mean, I, I think that's a good idea. But <laughs> but what is you know what is it? Let's get concrete. You know, yes. what, what can people do? Well, you know, my favorite Christian author is Dallas Willard. Okay, uh, he he wrote uh, the Divine Conspiracy. But mm-hmm. if you're, it, it's he's pretty brainy. But <laughs> but if you like that kind of thing, uh, the start with uh, the renovation of the heart. Mm-hmm. And he talks about somebody asked him once. They said, "What's the most important spiritual discipline?" And really without hesitation, which was unusual for him, he usually pauses, uh, he said solitude and silence. Hmm. Solitude and silence. Boy, are we the most distracted hmm. generation in the history of the world. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating. Right. Can I bring my phone into solitude and silence? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, right. And so once we get into solitude and silence, it allows us to actually spend time with God. And his point is, you don't become more of a grounded, uh, holy, for lack of a better term, person um, by gritting your teeth and saying, I'm going to do it, right? Uh, that doesn't work. That's what we call white knuckling. Uh, you, you don't white knuckle holiness. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. What, what you do is you spend time with God and God makes you holy, mm-hmm. right? Now, I, I, of course, we've all been declared holy, but I mean more sanctified, mm-hmm. right? More sanctified. And he changes you just by being with you. And so we have to be with him sometimes. We have to take time to be with him. Jesus did that. And Jesus mm-hmm. is God. Mm-hmm. And he still took time out of his day to go pray, right? And he said, I'm going to go up to the mountain and I'm going to pray for a day. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so uh, other spiritual disciplines, of course, apply. But I think getting into a position where you are so grounded in your identity as a person who is deeply loved and valued by your father, your creator, God, and that you will be okay no matter what happens to you that you have a certain kind of healthy detachment, actually, Hmm. right? They can call me a Marxist commie on Twitter, which they have. They can call me a right-wing nutcase, which they have. Uh, They can't pick. Mm -hmm. But but it's okay, right? I know who I am. and so, so we don't, I'm not kidding around when I say that spiritual formation is at the basis of all of this. Yeah. And then what that means is now you are someone who, as you practice the spiritual discipline and you spend time with God, now you are someone who starts to naturally respond in a more Christ-like way. You're reading the Bible, you're praying, you're celebrating, you're worshiping, all of the disciplines, right? Mm-hmm. And now you're in a situation where... Uh, you're dealing with someone who's different from you, or maybe you're at a dinner table and you've got both at mm-hmm. the same table, right? Mm-hmm. And you can draw on the grace of God <laughs> to know how to handle that situation wisely, mm-hmm. um, how to um, deal with the specifics of that situation, how to read the person that you're with and know maybe what they need mm-hmm. to hear from you, right? And what, how you can meet them where they're at and bring them along. Mm-hmm. Um, and so forth, right? And so there's a there's a grace and a power that comes from God that we don't have within ourselves. You know, I, I my joke is that I wake up in the morning and I love myself and I hate all of you. You know, I mean that, that that's my nature, right? right? But but because because of the connection to God, we have a, a, a jetpack of power, right? We have this power <laughs> that we can draw upon. 
um, if we're connected. And so uh, I want to give a big shout out here also to Tim Carney, who was in my session, the, yeah. the author of Alienated America. He made such a good point. He said, let's not be over individualistic about it either. Mm-hmm. This is about living in community. And I thought, oh, thank God he got up and said that because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm part of Love the Lou, as you said mm-hmm. in the introduction. In Love the Lou, where we do neighborhood stabilization work and we're down in the toughest parts of the city, you couldn't you couldn't tell what po- our politics are. Mm. Uh, if you went down the line, there'd be somebody on the far left, somebody on the far right and everybody in between. Mm. Because when you're on the street level helping people, it, it doesn't matter. Mm. A lot of that stuff doesn't matter. You know, mm-hmm. um, not when you're face to face, not when you're shoulder to shoulder. Mm. You know, working together in community, and so that's another um, that's another uh, strategy mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to how do I your question right? How do yeah. what do I actually do in my life? You need to be part of real <laughs> flesh in the flesh communities that are not an echo chamber, mm. right? In mm-hmm. which you are loving neighbors that are harder to love <laughs> for you. Right. And they're not always going to tell you what you want to hear. And they're not always going to hear what they want to hear from you. <laughs> and and that is good. And that's OK. Iron sharpens iron. Mm. So as I mentioned, and you you, know, you brought up your introduction, uh, you're also a philosopher. That's um, right. And in addition to being a person of faith, you're, you're a very, very thoughtful person. Um, and I think that's that's part of the the battle too. Uh, I love uh, Victor Clark's little book on free trade coffee, where he says, you know, we're not supposed to love God with just our mind or just our heart, but with our whole being, right? So how how do we, in addition to that, and I and I think we absolutely have to start with a spiritual formation, but how do we also love our neighbor with our mind? Uh, what 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 things have helped you think more clearly about issues like this? Um, and you know, it's it's. There, there are very thoughtful people uh, in the world who who really buy into this friend enemy distinction between everyone they meet, um, and I think they're wrong for <laughs> for falling into it. But I, I don't think they're dumb. Um, so how how do we find a different pathway for our thoughts, a different way of analyzing the world in which we live? You know, what what is, or even just simply personally, what has helped you uh, come to the point where? Even researching any of this was a live option. Mm. You know, this is a kind of an obvious answer, but being a classical liberal actually has <laughs> been – I've actually been thinking about writing a piece like why I'm grateful, you know, mm. that I'm a classical liberal or that I am familiar with this tradition. And I say that because I've never – I have never fit in to mm. the political binary. And so it's always been an option, right? It's always been, I agree with the left on these things and I agree with the right on these things. I want I could, I would end the drug war tomorrow, you know, <laughs> if I could, right? Mm-hmm. Which sounds crazy. It sounds like a crazy radical thing, but I also think we have way too much national debt, you know, so, yeah. right? So I'm very comfortable uh, talking with the right on some things and I'm very comfortable talking with the left on some things. And so that has become a little bit of a mental habit. And I think specifically as Christians, when we think about things like poverty alleviation, I mean, talk about loving your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I mean, what a helpful thing to think through the truths of economics. Mm-hmm. Talk about loving people with your mind. And I remember back in grad school, I was in a, a roundtable discussion and one of these just good hearted Catholic students at St. Louis University, which is a Jesuit institution. She goes, you just have to love people. You just shouldn't think about it. <laughs> and I just said, absolutely not. You will do harm. Yeah. You will do harm. You will make things worse. Yeah. 
And you have some very well-intentioned radicals in the 1960s who did things that it will take us decades and decades to recover from. Mm. And I'm talking about people's real lives, their families, Mm. their family structure. I mean, Malcolm X blames the social worker for the breakup of his family Mm. because they came in and got them trapped in the welfare system. Mm. Right. And so when you start thinking about it, you realize I have to use my mind Mm. when I love people. I have to be willing to not just say what sounds loving, and talk about the policies that feel good, mm. uh, that sound good to the electorate, maybe. But I have to take the time to explain why that will not work and it could even do harm. Mm. And if anything, our pledge should be to do no harm at the very mm-hmm. least, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I am very grateful, actually, for, uh, you know, since I was about probably 18 or 19 years old, being in the freedom movement, being in the liberty movement and always being forced in some sense to not fit in no matter where I was. It's even helped me with church, you know, because at any church I go to, I'm fairly ecumenical. Yeah, I could do yeah. high church. I could do low church. You know, <laughs> I'm all over the place. But uh, at any church I go to, I'm never going to really totally 100 percent agree. Mm. And that's OK. Hmm. You know, these people are. Children of God. They are my brothers and sisters. I love them dearly. We can disagree on Mm. secondary issues. You know, we agree on the gospel, and that's what matters. And so there's a lot of places in my life where just having that kind of mental training um, has been just hugely beneficial to Mm. me. I I think that for those who um, don't have a lot of experience maybe across groups— uh, it's really worth pursuing. It's really worth doing. You know, visit some other churches. Go yeah. to, you know, go to the other parties, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, town hall or whatever. Right. Um, really expand yourself a little bit. That's what. That's part of what it is to be in a free society is mm-hmm. to is to live together peacefully, mm-hmm. and we have to know each other and love each other and be neighbors in spite of the fact that we disagree. And and so that's important. Yeah. All right. So. I like to end these interviews with basically a free space question at the end. Okay. Um, so I don't have it well formulated, but <laughs> um, but I want to make sure that, you know, if, there, if there's some element of your presentation or your thoughts on this uh, that you, you just want to make sure we, we don't forget to discuss and talk about, you know, is there anything that you feel like, you know, we, we, can't, we can't conclude this interview unless I mention this? Um, hmm. Is there anything that comes to mind? Uh, is there anything that you feel like, you know, we've we've talked about a lot of the misconceptions, a lot of the examples of polarization, a lot of the um, more practical side of it. Um, but is there anything we're missing? Is there any element to this um, that that maybe also needs to to be discussed more? Maybe be be thought yeah. through a little more. Well, am I allowed to a- end with kind of a question? Sure. Because I told the group yesterday, you know, I said, I'm not sure about everything. You know, I I don't, I don't, I'm not certain necessarily. And so there's one objection that, uh, or maybe a couple of objections that I think, you know, I think maybe I can answer, but I'm not 100% sure. Mm -hmm. Um, One is, and you kind of mentioned it earlier, is this just a personality type, right? (laughs) uh, You know, uh, I'm a a person high in openness and high in agreeableness Mm -hmm. and things like that. So is, is that part of what's going on here. And also, even if it isn't, right, even if it's something we really ought to do, it's not just my personality. Um, is it just too hard? 
I yeah. mean, I mean, in order to have a nuanced position on various things, you have to do a lot of reading and research, and mm-hmm. you have to have a certain level of intellect. I mean, not every. I mean, you know, like like Thomas Sowell says, half of the population is uh, under average. You yeah, know, right. <laughs> it's below average IQ. Right. You know, um, that's just statistics, everybody. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so is am I raising the bar here just unrealistically? Is it is it idealistic? Mm. And I tried to respond by saying on the personality thing, I said, by the way, being a peacemaker is not very popular. So mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that I'm high in agreeableness, it's actually not feeding my agreeableness <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to be a peacemaker. Because when you tell conservatives that some things that progressives say are right and when you tell progressives that some things conservatives say are right, no one likes you. You know, right. you're just everyone's enemy. So you, mean you don't just get everyone to like you? Yeah. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> um, so that's my defense there. But yeah. um, but. But with regard to the, uh, the, you know, sort of intellectual and just the time, you know, spent doing these things, um, you know, my only real response was that maybe it's something that those of us who have that gift or the gift of that time or that it's even our job, right, mm-hmm. to do these things, that we can lead. We can we can be leaders. Mm. But, uh, you know, we can explain things maybe in a, in a more approachable way so that people can get a quick, you know, they can trust and come to trust us and feel yeah. that we're, that we're careful and they don't have to do all the background research. But, um, but I do think that's a legitimate question, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is there something too idealistic about this? And in the end, um, you know, people just grab onto their, their party platforms and their bundles of ideas and they don't want to unbundle because that's uncomfortable right. and that's not going to happen, you know. And so I'm, I'm, I'm open to push back on that and to, and to thoughts. Yeah, I, I'm along those lines of it being, you know, too hard. Um, I, I'm always struck being, again, you know, uh, a liberal myself, a classical liberal, squishy moderate. Um, it's easy to say, you know, X is bad, Y is good in a tweet or a slogan or whatever. Right. But to say, sure, X is bad, but sometimes X is Y, which is actually good. <laughs> and at least it isn't Z, which is worse. And, you know, you can't, it just exactly. doesn't, it's not not as marketable, um, right. you know. Um, so right. there, there is, I think, an uphill challenge when, when whatever you believe is not reducible to, you know, a have it your way Burger King sort of slogan uh, uh, to to say, well, you know, sometimes this is good, but sometimes that's bad. And sometimes people need this and other times they need that. Yeah. What what if I say I agree with what you're trying to accomplish, but you're using the wrong legal means? Yeah. Right. That's happening in Texas. That's happening in Florida. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you say and people go, oh, well, that's in the weeds. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, you say, well, it's not going to be in the weeds when it all comes (laughs) back to haunt you later. Yeah. Yeah. So that's true. So I think that's part of maybe, you know, I think of people like C.S. Lewis or N.T. Mm-hmm. Wright, you know, some of these great Christian writers, these guys do have a way of bringing fairly complex ideas um, to a level that at least the interested, curious person can grasp. And that's a real gift. Um, and so for those of us who do that kind of work, maybe that's our role. You know, that's what's yeah. important for us to do so that we can kind of distill things down for mm-hmm. people. Um, because, yeah, not everybody wants to sit around and think about every detail of every policy or whatever it is right. every day. You know, that's right. not their lives. Their lives are full of their actual lives, you know, raising their children yeah. and doing their jobs. Yeah. To give some context, I know there's been a lot of kind of inner conservative fighting over, you know, the new right, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, and I, you know, I, I had a, my talk this year kind of address some of that but this is like the first I've been able to feel like I can say anything intelligent about it it's like 2023 they've been going at this since like 2016 you know it just t- took a lot of reading to get there whereas they were just ready to go with their slogans <laughs> you know yes. um, 
it's it's a lot of work. It really is, and I, it's not for everyone, um, and that's I, okay. I made my husband <laughs> laugh really hard one time because he's more of a quick decider. You know, he'll <laughs> judge yeah. quickly what he thinks, and and I say, honey, sometimes when you bring up an issue and you tell me exactly what you think, I want to respond. Give me one year to right. do the research, and I'll tell you what I think. And he just guffawed at that, right. you know, because we're so different in that yeah. regard. That's true, but better a thoughtful response that. Um, is true mm. and that makes sense and mm-hmm. that has long-term viability than an unthoughtful response that's false. Yeah. One slogan that has always really bothered me is the whole silence is violence sort of thing. To, yes. to pressure people to speak up when they, they don't even feel like they've had the time to think through right. what's going on. I mean, if that one of many that feeds into this this you know polarized kind of culture, uh, silence, as you, as you already mentioned, is a spiritual discipline. Um, it, it can be the the basis, the bedrock of more thoughtful, more loving, more careful engagement with the world. Um, and, you know, I think it's a bit under, underrated these days. Um, we, we have to play the long game. Yeah. And our culture is pressing us to think about everything as the next 24 hours, the next 48 hours, even the things with like um, politically correct, you know, pressure on companies and things like that. Everybody freaks out because it's everyone's going crazy on Twitter. And I'm thinking, wait till next week. You know, they yeah. won't be talking about it. And so you have everybody's in reaction mode and it's very quick. And I think that's something that that spiritually attuned people can bring, actually, mm. is saying, you know, don't don't panic. Stay you know, calm. I think I, I, I thought of a catchy slogan. Silence is the sound of listening. Ooh, <laughs> Dylan, I just got chills. <laughs> I want a T-shirt. <laughs> that is really good. Silence is the sound of listening. And your point about— It only about... took me uh, you know, nine years to come up with that in response <laughs> to silence is fine. But now it will really make a difference. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> and your point about the phrase silence is violence is an excellent point, hmm. that that pressures people to say things they don't understand that they don't mean mm. that they don't they don't feel ready to say and that is not helping anyone right well then you feel committed right you get in the sacrifice yeah. trap of i've already i've already i've already invested in this now i don't want to walk it back right you know right. um yeah it's, it's also okay to change your mind yeah that's <laughs> another very hard thing to yep. do but yeah that's actually what repentance is right that's to, right literally to change your mind metania yeah that's right yeah, yeah. Turn turn around. Turn your <laughs> yes, brain turn around. Yes, turn around. Shoot. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, Keep exactly. Your, yes, turn around. Go the other way. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much. This has been a great discussion. I hope listeners uh, will go to Amazon or other booksellers and look up Black Liberation through the marketplace. And as we've already discussed, be on the lookout for more books written and co-written by, by Rachel. Um, and, and hopefully you'll get a chance to have a great conversation with her someday as well. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Online. Dylan. This was awesome. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.